Ah, yes, Pentecost. Yeah, what a day. Great day. And, uh, you know, for those of you who think as you look up here there must be something wrong with your eyesight that uh, things seem to be getting dimmer up here, no, there's nothing wrong with your eyesight. Actually, uh, the, the bulbs above me here have reached their life expectancy and they're going out one by one. And, and when we, uh, we're waiting until July when we get uh, you know, the remodeling project going, then we're going to get the big lift in here, hoist it up there and change some bulbs. Until then, you know, as they you know, drop off one by one, I think we're going to have to have the acolyte hold a flashlight on the pastor <laughs> as he preaches up here. But you know, today, um, we could probably do with a healthy dose of you know, the flames of Pentecost in more ways than one. And uh, today, we, uh, uh, you know, one thought really comes to mind for me as, as we look at this day and the meaning of it, and that thought is this, that if you're a Christian, sooner or later, you need to decide, do I believe in a living Jesus or a dead Jesus? You know, most of us are going to say, oh, I believe in a living Jesus, of course. But there is, you know, um, a kind of Christianity out there now uh, that really believes in a dead Jesus. And because what, what happens is that uh, in, in this kind of faith, and it is a faith, um, uh, a person would believe in Jesus as example. You know, and there's, and there's some good solid foundation for this because, after all, we are called by Scripture to be like Christ, aren't we? you know, uh, to be like Him, to follow His example. But if we believe in a dead Jesus, then what we do is try to be like Christ and, and follow that example of our own accord, of our own power. And uh, there's really, in the end, not much fun in that, um, not much power in that, if we try to do that without the living Jesus. And on the other hand, there's another kind of faith, which is faith in the living Jesus, now, for some of us, uh, maybe we say that we believe in the living Jesus. I know that there are many times, unfortunately, I don't say this with any kind of pride or anything like, like that. I say it with some shame. That there are times when I say that I believe in the living Jesus, but then I live as though I believe in a dead Jesus because I'm buying into, you know, uh, the values or things of this world. Fear, uh, worry, you know, things like that can, can crop up. And it's easy to go through life saying one thing, but living as though Jesus really were not alive at all. But there is another kind of faith, which is faith in a living Jesus. And this kind of faith understands that when Jesus came out of that tomb 2,000 years ago, it wasn't just a one moment in time that he was alive. You know, kind of like Lazarus. You know, when Lazarus came out of the tomb, he was alive for a while, but then he died again, Okay. But with Jesus, that's not true. With Jesus, what happened was he came out of the tomb. He returned to the Father, which means that 2,000 years later, today, he's still alive. And if you think about it that way, that Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, and if he is still alive today, then there's only one way that that could happen, and that is by the power of God. So if you believe in a living Jesus, then you believe in the power of God. And you have access to that power of God. Now, Jesus, before he departed to be with the Father, he said to his followers, which would include us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said, 
that I will be with you always, even until the end of time. And we're not to the end of time yet, which means that Jesus is with us now. How is he with us? Well, Jesus said to his followers that he needed to return to the Father so that he might send the Comforter, the Spirit. And this Spirit of God is to Jesus as Jesus is to the Father, which is that we can see in Scripture that Jesus is to the Father as uh, he said, if you see me, you see the Father. They are one in the other. So that when the Spirit comes, we see Jesus, the Father, the Comforter, all here in the presence of God among us. Jesus has not left us as orphans. He is with us still. And when he promised these things, these were things that were for all time, not just for one period of time. And yet throughout time, as we look back, you know, these days, uh, for example, there, there is uh, controversy out there about whether or not uh, our founding fathers in this country were actually Christians. Well, the reality of the matter is that some were what was called deists, and some were what we would readily recognize as being Christians. The deists got their faith really out of what was then the Enlightenment, and they believed this, that they believed in God, and they believed that God was kind of like a divine clockmaker who made this wonderful, amazing clock and then set it on the shelf, on the mantle above his fireplace, and where he let it run on its own while he went about his business. That's that kind of belief. It's the kind of belief that really is in a dead Jesus. But the other kind of faith is, is the kind of faith that we see all over the place in many of our founding fathers, which was a faith in a living Jesus, an imminent Jesus, a God who comes into this world, into a manger in Bethlehem to be close to us, a God who comes into this room with the followers of Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem to be near us, to be powerfully present. And they got this kind of a faith Really, uh, it was something that they, that they uh, received from God through this period of time that was called the Great Awakening or the First Great Awakening. There was a second one. And, and at the Great Awakening, there were people like this man by the name of George Whitfield who stood out in an open field preaching to thousands of people without one of these babies, without a microphone, okay? And the people actually heard him. He must have had an amazing voice, either that or they had supersonic hearing. But they heard him, these thousands of people out there. Not only did they hear him, but his words sunk into their hearts and they were transformed by the presence of this living Jesus. It's a powerful thing, this presence of Jesus. It was like the first Pentecost where on that first day of Pentecost, as it says in Acts chapter 2, this happened. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, meaning all the disciples, all the followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a wimpy fan, no, like the blowing of a mighty wind, came from heaven, filling the whole house where they were seeing. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, it separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, normally when we read about this passage, we begin to focus, and I think rightly so, 
on the coming of the Spirit and then what happens next, you know, speaking in tongues and, and sharing the good news and all of the miraculous signs that happen. Today, what I want, I want to invite us to do, though, is focus on what happened before the Spirit came. What, was the, what were the disciples doing? And this is an open question, not a rhetorical question. What were the disciples doing? What do you suppose they might have been doing before the Spirit came, when they were all gathered together in one place? What do you, what do you suppose? What do you think? What's that? Hiding. They could have been hiding, okay, for fear of the Jews, okay, for fear of those who had crucified Jesus. That's possible. Okay, what, what else do you suppose they might have been doing? Waiting, okay. Now, they might have been doing something while they were waiting. Praying. What, what's that? Mourning, okay. Jesus was now back with the Father, okay. Playing bingo, um, you know. Uh, actually, if we look back to the end of the Gospel of Luke, what we can see is, is this. Now, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. They're, they're this uh, pair that goes together. And there's this overlap at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. At the end of Luke, what we can see is this. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is returned to the Father right in front of them, and it says this. Then they worshipped him, Jesus, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. In other words, they couldn't help themselves. They couldn't help but worship Him. All right? They were continually doing this. And therefore, when they were waiting, what they were doing was worshiping Him. And it was out of worship that the Spirit came. Okay? Now, there's some scholars who believe that, uh, they, they take that one step further, and they believe that when in Acts it talks about how they were in this house and the Spirit came, that actually the house that it's referring to is the house of God, that they were actually in the temple courts. And there the Spirit was poured out on them, and there they had all of these people who were rushing to them to see what was going on and, and asking the question, what does this mean? I don't know if that's it or not, because they also worshipped in homes in those days. They didn't have buildings like this, so they would gather together. And they would worship God together. And what, what we do see here is that they were worshiping before the Spirit came. Now, the question is, what is worship? Now, this is kind of a strange thing that we do here as we gather together in this place. I mean, uh, you think about it. How many places out there can people even get together and sing these days? You know, a ball game maybe, but most people don't even sing the national anthem at the ball game. You know, it's a strange thing that we do here. And people, uh, I've encountered people that uh, have not been in churches who have no clue what in the world would you even do in there. You know, in the early church, they wondered and they, they heard these things about the Lord's Supper and they thought that Christians were cannibals. They had no idea what was going on in there. So what is this thing, worship, that we've got here? Well, worship, first and foremost, begins with expectation. What do you expect when you come to worship. You know, if for those who believe in a dead Jesus, what they will expect is that Jesus will not show up because he's dead, okay? So therefore, when they go to this thing that they call worship, something will be worshiped, but it won't be Jesus. Instead, what it would be maybe is music, or maybe it will be tradition, or maybe it will be certain ideas will be worshiped. Or maybe um, the institution might be worshipped. But not Jesus, because you need a living one in order to worship Him. 
And in the absence of the living one, now there's this vacuum that other things rush into. But those who believe in a living Jesus would expect that Jesus is going to show up because he said that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He also said that wherever two or more, and we got more than that here, are gathered in his name, that he's there with us. So the expectation is that he's going to be here among us, that he's going to show up. The second thing that worship is and must have is honor. You see, um, any kind of worship that does not have honor is dishonorable worship to him. Therefore, worship itself must have honor. Now, this time of year, I think it's particularly appropriate to talk about this because we have this little thing going on these days called graduation. Anybody going to a, or been to a graduation or graduation party uh, coming up? Anything like that? Okay, we got a few out there. All right. Um, when you go to those things, you go to honor that graduate, correct? You go there and you spend some time there. You might bring them a card or a gift or, you know, whatever else. Or, you know, you, you, you go there to show them honor. But you do not worship them, right? So you can have honor without worship, but you cannot have worship without honor. When I came back from my graduation here a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, I came back to see some wonderful things that were taking place. Uh, first of all, came back and, and saw that, surprise, surprise, some kind people had gone in and repainted my office. Now, oftentimes when I go away, you know, I come back to some practical jokes. A 800-pound gorilla sitting in my chair in my office, you know, things like that. But this time, you know, uh, they had repainted my office. Or the sign out front, the marquee, uh, saying congratulations and to God be the glory, which is what it's all about because it's honor, not worship, okay? And uh, then the uh, reception last Sunday, man, great, you know, Totally surprised by that. Linda brought me down there telling me that we had to go get something from somebody who was in the kitchen, and lo and behold, here it was. Again, honor. But of course it's not worship. Now, when uh, I was at my graduation, it was something that you know, I will never forget. It was an amazing event where we uh, you know, had our, our gowns on, and, and the doctoral students had their sergeant stripes and their caps and gowns and all that kind of stuff. We lined up outside the first seminary building. And when we lined up out there... Uh, the bell out there, right there, began to gong, just gong. And then this beautiful campus, I mean, there's trees and, and uh, this lake, just uh, this idyllic kind of a setting. So we set out um, in, uh, in order, in file, around the lake to walk down to the first building that we would walk into before the auditorium where the graduation was taking place. And as we walked into the auditorium, the graduates walked through this gauntlet of professors who were cheering and applauding wildly, showing us honor, but not worship. And then we went into the auditorium itself where we sang songs to the one who is worthy of worship. And we, and we prayed to Him and we praised Him, and He is the one who's worthy of worship with honor. Now, when we get to the last day, when the last trumpet sounds and the new Jerusalem comes, and we walk into that place as believers in Jesus Christ, I can picture it being like us walking through that gauntlet of professors with the great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, applauding and showing honor, but not worship. Because worship is reserved for the Lamb who is on the throne. 
He is the one who is worthy of worship with honor. Worship involves honor. And thirdly, worship involves focus. There's lots of different things that we can focus on when we come here. You know, we can focus on there not being enough light to see the preacher up here. We can focus on your shoes that are too tight. We can focus on, you know, just the song. Uh, We can focus on the person sitting next to us. We can focus on all kinds of things. But focus is part of real worship. Worship. We focus on Him. Focus on Jesus. We come into His presence. You know, the Lutheran tradition has always had, and it's one of the things I love about Lutheran worship, regardless of what form of Lutheran worship it might be, is that Lutheran worship has always had this sense of God being this holy other, of walking into the throne room of God and bowing at His feet like Mary outside of the open tomb, you know, with her face pressed into the ground, worshiping the resurrected Jesus. You know, that's focus. Focus on Him. And in worship, we have all kinds of different elements that take place here. You know, we got the Word, we got uh, the offering we give back to God, we got prayers, we got the songs. And then with the songs, we've got really two kinds of worship songs. If you knew this or not, we've got two kinds of worship songs. We've got the kind that sings about God, about how great He is, about His, his name, His character, all these kinds of things. And we have songs that sing to God. Now, today, we've, we've been loaded up with songs to God, which are cool because, you know, you just bow at His feet. But both ways, they are focusing on Him and who He is. Worship involves focus. But the problem for a lot of us is that things get in the way of worship. Things bind us and keep us back from being able to worship Him, which is, is something that we can, we can glean some insight from Moses. Remember last Sunday when Tim was telling us about the call of Moses, how he was sent out to Egypt? Well, when he was sent out to Egypt and he was objecting to God that he wasn't the man for the job, God was telling him all kinds of great things. And he went out there and he said, okay, go tell Pharaoh this. And he went into Egypt and he told Pharaoh this from God. And most people, when they think about Moses and, uh, you know, the Hebrew slaves and all that kind of stuff, they think about that what Moses probably said was, let my people go so that they can go to the promised land. But that wasn't it at all. That's not what happened. That's not what he said. Instead, here's what he said. Exodus 10. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Oh, God is the one who sets us free so that we might worship him. What is it that binds you from worshiping him? Jesus came into this world, died on that cross, so that you might be set free to worship him. You know, back when Jesus came into this world, at that period of time, uh, people who were rich or powerful and things like that, they were rich and powerful for one reason. And that was to show themselves honor. They would throw all kinds of banquets. They'd throw all kinds of parties and parades and all this kind of thing to say, wow, how great I am. And uh, into this world came the Son of God who was worthy of all worship, all honor. And he was sent to the cross where he experienced dishonor and shame. The greatest value of that world was honor. The greatest disgrace was shame thing to be avoided at all costs. That's what Jesus took on for us. Why did he do that? So that we might be free to worship. So that we might experience 
and know and look forward to what will happen and that, that Philippians chapter 2 talks about where it says that in that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, there are times here in worship when, you know, we're singing away, and I love to sing the songs that we sing here, but there are times when I've got to stop myself and just listen. And when I listen, I, I hear these voices, and it's a great sound. But I listen for something even deeper than that. I listen for something even more. What I listen for is the Spirit. And I hear the Spirit in the voices. And when I hear the Spirit in the voices here, I know that God is here. And I thank God that He is here. I thank God for this church. I thank God for you know, this hour, this time. When Moses was going to head out to Egypt, the Lord said to him, Moses, this is the sign that you will know that I am with you. That when you come out of Egypt, when the people are set free and you come out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. That will be the sign that I am with you. And when we worship him, we know that in that moment, he is with us. That is the sign. Sooner or later, you got to decide. Do you believe in a dead Jesus? Or do you believe in a living Jesus? He is alive. By the power of God, he is alive. Worship him. Amen.